This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our pals at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at wcscreens.com. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, or more, make a beeline for wcscreens.com. They have nationwide shipping and wholesale pricing. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. A deep and fascinating dive today on early Notre Dame head football coach Pat O'Day. By the time O'Day reached Notre Dame's campus to lead the team in 1900, he was already a national celebrity in the sport of college football for his, quote, miraculous kicking, end quote. Given his Australian lineage, he actually garnered the nickname of the Kangaroo Kicker while he was a student athlete at Wisconsin. He led Notre Dame for two seasons, 1900 and 1901. His mysterious disappearance later in life spawned a number of rumors about the 19th century college football star. I am pleased to share with you the rise, fall, and rise of Pat O'Day, Notre Dame head coach and kangaroo kicker. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and welcome to episode number 92, chapter number 92, and now the second offering of the year 2024. Folks, you can't miss this one. It checks quite a number of boxes, including obscure yet fascinating chapters of Notre Dame football. If you're into quote-unquote pre-Rockney era, as I know some of us are, this one's for you. And hey, if you're into the specialists, you know, kickers, punters, you're going to dig this one. And if you like a good mystery or a twisty type ending, I think you'll dig this one as well. So a couple housekeeping items before we go in. First, I hope you had a chance to listen to episode 91, released just after the first of the year. It was about Rockney Gip and Four Horsemen era linemen, a gentleman named John R. Flynn. Now remember that name. Flynn had a long career in public service after he finished his playing days at Notre Dame, and some of which included being number two to the famous G-Man, the untouchable Elliot Ness in the city of Cleveland in the mid-1930s. Ness is, of course, noteworthy for his efforts to take down gangster Al Capone, and he was played by Robert Stack in the Untouchables TV show, and Kevin Costner in the Untouchables movie. I think what many forget is that for large swaths of American history, Elliot Ness was a figure of national prominence, and he was also a household name for, again, large periods of American history, 
And so I tried to give significant backstory to both Flynn and Ness, the eras in which defined them, as well as kind of the confluence of events that brought the men together. So make sure you go check it out if you haven't already. It was a good one. Also, a sincere acknowledgement here to the show's financial sponsors. We call them the Consensus All-Americans. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show's efforts, and they are. Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Brad Fuller of Williamsburg, Indiana. Author, writer, and Notre Dame alum, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio. My good pal, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana and Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey. If you would like to chip in and make the prestigious muster roll of the Consensus All-Americans, please visit paypal.me slash onwardtovictory if you're interested in a one-time donation, or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast for monthly donations. Of course, I'd be remiss not to mention that this show is powered by, and I mean powered by, West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery. You can find them at wcscreens.com. So please jump over to them with any screen printing, embroidery needs, or more. But thank you all, and if you're not in the position to give, that is okay. Simply like, subscribe, share, leave a review. All of the above helps this podcast and helps us here as we enter our fifth year. So for today, we're going to talk about a gentleman named Pat O'Day. And for those who may not be aware, uh, I am currently, or I, I guess I have been for a little over three years, been writing a book about a gentleman named Lewis Salmon, who was Notre Dame's first Walter Camp All-American when he was named to the third team in 1903. Salmon famously played fullback, but he also played linebacker, kicker, and punter for Notre Dame between 1900 and 1903. He is also the head coach of the team in 1902 and 1903 as a player but he isn't credited for it in program history, which is a glaring omission that I aim to address by this work and then hopefully fix, although with uh, several others for that matter. Uh, a lot of the things that happened in, during that era of Notre Dame football are not recognized in the program history books, but it was digging into the playing career on a day-by-day basis of Lewis Salmon that afforded me the opportunity to acclimate to the exploits and wildly interesting story of Pat O'Day, which I'm eager to share here. By the way, hoping to sew this book up and have it ready to release by football season, and I'll share more as we get closer. It took quite a bit of digging to pull this one together, but I have to credit one book in particular, and that is Dave Revzin's work called The Opening Kickoff the tumultuous birth of a football nation. And it is a fantastic work. Revson chronicles O'Day like no one has before and uses him a character of sorts to build the narrative of college football and the birth of which and kind of the modernization of which around. If you're thinking, hey, I know that name. Well, Revson is a pillar for the Big Ten Network and their associated football coverage. In fact, he's probably one of their longest standing uh, reporters and journalists for the entire network. He might have been there, I think, on day one. But at any rate, O'Day was coach in 1900 and 1901 at the University of Notre Dame, that is. But let's start at the beginning for our man. He was born in Kilmore, Australia in March of 1872. 
for you folks kind of like me and your map folks. You always kind of got to know where everything is. Kilmore is in the state of Victoria and is about 60 or so miles north of Melbourne. His mother, Johanna, was Australian, and his father, Patrick, was Irish. He was born in County Clare before his family moved to Australia when he was 11. Now, this is where the fun already begins. Multiple sources, reputable ones at that, still claim that Pat O'Day's birthday was March 17th. However, according to Revson's research, he actually arrived a day earlier on March 16th. But as Revson wrote, quote, What Irishman wouldn't want a birthday on St. Patrick's Day? O'Day was never one to let truth get in the way of a good story, end quote. So if you read that uh, O'Day, as I've actually read several times over, that O'Day was born on St. Patrick's Day, which is pretty cool for a Notre Dame head football coach, uh, that's actually not true. He was born the day before. Uh, his father died, though, as a young boy. So Patrick died when Pat was small, and Pat's mother moved the family closer to Melbourne. Pat actually made headlines in 1888 as a teenager when he sprang into action in an attempt to save a woman from drowning at the beach. While Pat did risk his own life in the attempt and did successfully bring her back to shore, the woman sadly did not make it. But the Australian Royal Humane Society gave him an effort for his medals nonetheless. But that story itself, for you Pat O'Day researchers, similar to the fabricated birth date, grew a bit in proportion over the decades. In 1934, it was reported that he had battled sharks to save the woman, and the woman survived. This fable was reprinted as recent as 2007. This wasn't true, none of it, but again, perhaps... O'Day just wanted to give the story a little bit more color. So Pat had aspirations to be an attorney, but he was far from a sterling student. In fact, he applied for admission to Melbourne University on three different occasions. Melbourne University would have been the more prestigious university in his area, and he was denied all three times. With his academic career effectively on hiatus, he went out for athletic endeavors. He spent four seasons, 1892, 3, 4, and 1895, playing Australian rules football, also known as footy, where he eventually did indeed became a star in the league. And if you need to brush up a bit on your footy rules, here's a summation from Revson once again, quote, footy is a kicking game. Though players can run with the ball provided, they bounce it periodically. In O'Day's time, it was every seven yards they had to bounce it. And the only way to score is by booting the ball through the posts at either end of the field. Hence, in order to excel in footy, a player has to be an accomplished kicker, particularly on the run, end quote. Particularly on the run will come into play here in just a little bit. So yeah, elements of a few perhaps more familiar sports going on in Australian rules football, where it seems like there was actually some dribbling happening. But O'Day was indeed quite good. The September 17, 1894 issue of the Melbourne Argus called him one of the best players in the Australian Football League. And this is when he was suiting up for the Melbourne Demons. 
They were then known as the Melbourne Redlegs. But at any rate, how does he get to America? Well, he was reputedly interested in attending the prestigious University of Oxford to study, but he decided to pay his brother, Andy, who was the rowing coach at the University of Wisconsin, a visit. Now, I have learned that you have to take some things you read about O'Day with a grain of salt. I can't say for sure if he was accepted to Oxford, but Revson himself wrote that O'Day was, quote, bored with his life in Australia and in search of a new adventure, end quote. So he ventured to North America. Also, Revson shared that Pat actually didn't know where to find Andy, but knowing of his brother's interest in boxing and rowing, he got to Canada and just began asking around and happened to follow a trail of clues that sent him to the University of Wisconsin, where a certain Andy O'Day was the head rowing coach. It's actually a really strange story. I didn't do it any justice there, but it was like a cold case, and he managed to find his brother on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. And it wasn't long after he found his brother on the campus that he himself enrolled at Wisconsin, and soon became a member of the football team in the fall of 1896. And it was during his very first game, not just as a collegian, but his first formal game of American football, that Pat had an 85-yard punt against Lake Forest, whom Notre Dame often clashed with as well during this era. But that punt remains the sixth longest in Wisconsin history, But wouldn't you know it, it's actually only the third longest in the career of Pat O'Day. And O'Day soon became a bona fide sensation. He kicked, punted, and played linebacker for Wisconsin. His fame only seemed to deepen with each passing week and each booming kick. He utilized the Australian technique of punting and place kicking while on the run to perfection. Here's what you have to understand. The specialists during this time were of the utmost importance. Punts were often traded back and forth. And here, let me tell you something about turn-of-the-century football. Uh, At the time, teams were asked to gain five yards on three downs instead of ten yards on four downs, like we know them today. The playbooks were fairly primitive. Football games were often slugged or slogged out in the trenches with inside runs, or line bucks, or line plunges, as they were often called. At any rate, it wasn't uncommon for teams, especially if they were deep in their own territory, to sneak off a punt on, say, first or second down in an attempt to catch their opponents off guard, and not to mention hope to reclaim a field position advantage. So Pat would often take the snap or a handoff, and he'd, and pardon me for saying this, haul ass towards the sideline or some green grass where he would get some momentum behind him and he'd have a running head start and he'd thunder a punt down the field, kind of like what he did during his time playing Australian rules football. And if he were close enough to try, he'd try a drop kick. And if O'Day wanted to attempt a drop kick, he'd stand about 12 yards behind the line of scrimmage. And believe it or not, during his four years at Wisconsin, he reputedly made 32 drop-kicked field goals. 32. This was mind-boggling at the time. But O'Day was named team captain for the Badgers during the 1898 and 1899 seasons. The Badgers were members of the Western Conference, which was the precursor 
to the Big Ten. But his kicks were legendary. They were the stuff of legends. In November of 1898, in the midst of a blizzard, mind you, O'Day kicked a 62-yard field goal against Northwestern. Here's an excerpt from On Wisconsin, which is the alumni magazine for the University of Wisconsin, and it was written by Revzin himself. Quote, The ball flew more than half the length of the field in an awe-inspiring arc, seemingly on a collision course with the grandstand behind the north goalpost. It sailed squarely between the posts and over a fence that lined the field landing easily 10 yards beyond the goal line, just in front of the stands. O'Day had booted the ball at least 210 feet. In a game where lengthy kicks were celebrated the way long runs or passes are today, this was the single most remarkable football play anyone in attendance had ever witnessed." End quote. After the 1898 season, O'Day now dubbed officially the Kangaroo Kicker, was named to Walter Camp's All-American team. It was the first year that any players from a quote-unquote Western team had ever been selected to the prestigious list. The list had been announced annually every year since the early 1890s, and if you know your All-American stuff even in the modern day, Walter Camp's name is still evoked, his foundation that is, for an annual All-American list even now. But O'Day made Camp's second team, and again, the list was traditionally dominated by Ivy League schools, who were football powerhouses at the time, as well as other Eastern schools, such as Army, Holy Cross, and others. But in 1899, O'Day was once again named to the All-American muster roll. That season, the Kangaroo kicker booted a 116-yard punt, believe it or not, and Pat graduated from Wisconsin in 1900 with a degree in law. So what was he going to do from there? He publicly contemplated heading back to Australia, or he even said that he might end up in South Africa. But ultimately, he stayed in college football. He accepted a head coaching position at what was considered at the time a third-rate football school and probably even a third-rate academic school, and that might have been a bit charitable. So yes, Irish fans, he ended up signing on the 1900 season at the University of Notre Dame. O'Day was the fifth football coach in Notre Dame history, and he succeeded James McWheeney, a South Bend police officer and notable local Greco-Roman wrestler and boxer. McWheeney is great, by the way, and likely we'll do an episode on him at some point. But at any rate, O'Day was famous, and he was taking his fame to the Notre Dame football program. And the Notre Dame football program had never known such notoriety in the past. Not by a long shot, actually. But interestingly, this fact seems to have eluded many historians who have chronicled the program. O'Day only gets a passing mention in Murray Sperber's Shake Down the Thunder. Chet Grant, who was the longtime authority on pre-Rockney Notre Dame football, so to speak, 
who covered the team for the local paper and then ultimately went on to play for the team in the 1910s and 20s, coached the team in the 1930s and kind of became the first uh, official historian of Notre Dame football and an archivist. Anyways, Chet Grant, he admitted that Pat O'Day, quote, wasn't even a name to him, end quote, when he was writing his work about early Notre Dame football some decades later. But the university and football program netting O'Day as head coach, a former All-American, was incredibly significant. At the time, here is a brief overview of the previous four official head coaches. In 1894, James L. Morrison was technically the first head coach in program history. He had played a season at Michigan the year before. And after his two-week contract was over in 1894, he jumped up to Hillsdale College and finished out the 1894 season with a completely separate program. In 1895, pardon me, H.G. Haddon, another fellow who had played at Michigan, he transferred to Notre Dame and became a player head coach as well. From 1896 through 1898, the program was helmed by Frank E. Herring, who I have an entire episode dedicated to, worth listening to, by the way. Now, Herring was a titan of early Notre Dame athletics. He coached the football, baseball, and basketball teams during his tenure. And while he did indeed play at Chicago, which was a noteworthy football school, he didn't necessarily bring a ton of cachet with him. In 1899... James McWheeney, again, tough guy, an unsung hero of early Notre Dame football. But he was also on the local police force. I don't say this to categorically disparage any or all of these men. I bring this up because, at the time, if you didn't have star players or a star coach or a recognizable brand, you truly were automatically relegated to the bottom rung of college football. And if you didn't represent a big-time university or college, which Notre Dame was not one. And most of the big stars and coaches and great universities were out east, save a few here and there. O'Day coming to Notre Dame gave the program visibility it had never really experienced in that manner. So in May of 1900, this was before Pat had actually taken the job, he was on campus at Notre Dame as an honorary race starter at a track and field meet held at Cartier Field. Cartier Field was Notre Dame's all-purpose athletic facility that predated Notre Dame Stadium. The track team played there, the football team played there, the baseball team played there, you get it. The Notre Dame students quickly flocked to him and asked him to share some of his stories about some of his famous kicks, which he obliged. And he then further thrilled the campus community when he stuck around to watch an inner hall baseball game between the Brownson and Corby Hall teams the following day. And it was the next month, June 1900, that O'Day was announced as Notre Dame's head football coach. So perhaps it was the visit to Notre Dame that May that helped clinch the deal. So how did the Notre Dame football team do during this time? Well, in 1900, the team went 6-3-1. and Now, while they beat Cincinnati, UC, they lost to Indiana, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So they pretty much lost to all of their major opponents, if you will. So 6-3-1. But what O'Day did, however, was he did indeed discover, so to speak, discover 
without a shadow of doubt, the best Notre Dame football player pre-George Gipp, and that was Lewis Salmon. So Lewis Salmon was a Syracuse, New York product who came to Notre Dame with not necessarily the intention to play football, though he had played football previously, and he was pressed into duty as the fullback eventually on the football team, and he was absolutely brilliant. So Pat O'Day certainly played a really big role in the development of Lewis Salmon. So again, okay, 1900, they were fairly pedestrian, but in 1901 is when they made a huge leap, and they went 8-1-1, and they beat both Indiana and Purdue and became the kind of quote-unquote state champions. They used to dub each year uh, the state champions in the state of Indiana, and it was obviously normally Indiana or Purdue. But however, since Notre Dame had beaten both schools, they were dubbed champions. So that was in 1901. The team went 8-1-1. It was easily, without a shadow of a doubt once more, the most successful season in Notre Dame football history. But on November 28th, the final game of the season, November 28th, 1901, they played the South Bend Athletic Association, kind of the local semi-pro football team. This is an actual game on their schedule. And while Notre Dame won 22-6, actually Pat O'Day, Coach O'Day, was suiting up for the other team, and he was a member of the South Bend Athletic Association. To make a long story short... The, at the end, the conclusion of this game on November 28th against the Athletic Association, there was a major brawl between the teams. And basically, Father Andrew Morrissey, who was the president at the time, kind of said, oh, enough's enough, we're not doing this. Morrissey wasn't a huge proponent of athletics in the first place, but the brawl caused a lot of embarrassment. So he actually fired Pat O'Day as a result. So his time at Notre Dame after two seasons and easily, again, the most brilliant season in program history, well, his tenure ended fairly abruptly as a result of the brawl between the Semi-Pro Athletic Association and his guys at Notre Dame. And just for the record, it wouldn't be formally announced until March of the following year, 1902, that Coach O'Day wouldn't be back to helm the football team. Father Morrissey did indeed have it in his mind that this enough was enough and that the program and university would be moving on. So it was December of 1901 that O'Day was badly injured during a semi-pro football game in Rensselaer, Indiana. Unfortunately, it was just two weeks later that as he was heading to Chicago, uh, he was beaten unconscious and robbed. Again, this was December 18th while he was on his way back to his hotel room. So if you want to talk about a really brutal couple-week stretch here for Pat O'Day, an embarrassing game between his collegiates and his semi-pro teams, uh, which ended in a brawl and effectively sacked him from his job. He was badly injured during a separate football game, and then he was beaten unconscious and robbed. And that was December, late November and December of 1901. So he would not be back to coach Notre Dame. But it is worth mentioning that during his two seasons at Notre Dame, he actually eclipsed Frank E. Herring's mark of 12 wins, which at the time would have been the highest in program history. So I guess if not nothing else, he left the program as the all-time winningest head coach. He had 14 wins 
So he took a job at the University of Missouri to coach football the next year, where they went 5-3. and three. This is where the story gets a little interesting, actually. In 1917, he completely disappeared off the face of the earth. And I mean vanished, seemingly without a trace. Now, there are a number of guesses as to why this is. There's, it's possible he was going to be sued for embezzlement. There was just a lot of impropriety on his part as a lawyer. And, you know, he was still kind of dealing and coping with having been a very, very famous figure in the world of college football, just as the golden age of sports, the 1920s, was kind of being ushered in. So what did people think happened? There was quite a popular belief, particularly around the University of Wisconsin alumni circles, that O'Day, the kangaroo kicker, had joined an Australian unit that was passing through San Francisco and that he was killed in action and buried somewhere overseas during World War I. But it was 17 years that nobody knew where this guy went. And again, even his own brother, Andy, assumed that he was killed in action during World War I. But 17 years later, it was in 1934, that in an isolated Northern California timber lumber town that a guy named Charles Mitchell was living. Locals had surmised that this Charles Mitchell was actually none other than the famous kangaroo kicker, Pat O'Day. And O'Day had every intention of living out his years in complete isolation, in complete anonymity, and unfortunately that plan was foiled and so the thing about the thing that happened at that point was is again now that we are through 1920s is traditionally recognized as the golden era of sports and college football is among there you could say George Gipp in 1920 helped usher in that prosperous decade of college sports and how we were kind of feeling about college sports and sports in general baseball and all the all the above but at any rate so something happens here all of a sudden this sports hungry nation is obsessed with the idea of these 19th century college football stars kind of the grandfathers the forefathers the founding fathers however you want to think of it of the sport so all of a sudden O'Day gets really famous once more and again, mind you, he was born the day before, St. Patrick's Day, 1872. So when he is, quote, rediscovered, he's 62 years old and all of a sudden becomes like a relic and a connection to football, college football of the yesteryear. And not to get into all of the things here, but it was during this period that a lot of like kind of the myths and uh, even mistruths of Pat O'Day kind of started to surface. So Revson does a really good job in his book of cutting through a lot of that. But so Pat O'Day ultimately does pass away on April 5th, 1962 at age 90 uh, after he spent months in the hospital battling a lengthy illness. But to accentuate a life interestingly lived, the luminary had two profound events occur the very week he died. The first was... He fielded a call hoping for his good health and well wishes from the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. And just the day before he passed away, it was announced that he, Pat O'Day, 
had also been inducted in the College Football Hall of Fame. So how about that? And so there you have it, folks. That was the rise, the fall, and the rise of Pat O'Day, Notre Dame coach and kangaroo kicker. And I'll be right back with a quick show wrap. I tell you, that one was a ton of fun to put together, and I hope you enjoyed it, too. The story of Pat O'Day is one, again, great for those who love to hear about specialists, but also those who like good, interesting stories, pre-Rockney football at Notre Dame, just all the above. So thanks for tuning in, and again, I hope you enjoyed. And if you liked this episode, I hope you'll consider supporting this podcast. Please like, subscribe, leave a review, do all the above. All those things help with the podcast continue to be found here in its fifth year and a fifth year that has a lot of big plans so make sure you're following on facebook if you want to drop the show an email please onward to victory uh, podcast at gmail.com or if you'd like to support the show financially please head over to the virtual collection baskets paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast Again, however you can support the show, please know it is all very, very appreciated. Graciously appreciated at that. Keep on the lookout for new future episodes. It's February. Football season will be here before we know it. I promise you. But a lot of really fun things planned before then here with Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. So don't hesitate. Stay tuned. Do what you got to do. Make sure you're getting alerted to all of the latest episodes. And with that, I had better sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.